Is this your idea of better TV? How about this? Or better yet, this? If you ask me, it's not the TV, but what's on it, like direct TV. 61 movie channels, 28 music channels, 14 news and information channels, and 12 family channels. All together, only on direct TV. So you can really channel your family's interests. Now for as low as $34.95 a month, you can own the 18-inch DSS dish of your choice with direct TV programming. Far up in the sky. See a satellite flying slowly over the horizon. Oh, how I wonder, wonder what it is. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Maybe Superman. Okay. Hello. So we don't have guests today. Um, Rochelle said she could come tomorrow if we wanted to do extra material. Telecom's best kept secret. Wireless isn't wireless. <laughs> That's funny. Where's that at? Nearly every main tower on a mobility network is hardwired to the next. So it's always funny when a cable repair crew is on site working hard to restore service and someone drives by to complain that their cell phone doesn't work. Okay, let's get started. Let's jump into this. We have been sitting on this episode for a long time. It's time to do issue 18. We will cover many things. We will cover culture. We'll check privilege and culture. We'll do a discussion about that. We'll discuss we'll discuss what is evidence and what are beliefs, why we're talking about satellites, and then talk about satellites. So welcome to issue 18. It is April 7th, 2017, and Kay, welcome back. It's nice to have you back again. It's great to be back, Hoy. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So where do we start? Want me to just ask you some questions? Yeah, let's do it. Let's just, because we've been doing a lot of research and it's it, it's it was overwhelming at a point, but I think we're we're back down to being focused again. Yeah, you said something interesting about the the Clues Forum thread on satellites, that it's a bit meandering and it operates under the assumption that we've identified fakery and so we're trying to find, you know, a reason for it and and that maybe we've we went a little far down the path of of saying, you know, it's definitely fake for for whatever reason. Yeah, evidence, I guess, right? That that would clear things up, I think. Get that in there a little stronger. There's there's quite a lot of good stuff, but you know, like what we're trying to do with Clues Chronicles is make it available to like the guy on the street. Yeah. You know, make that's it more. Right. Yeah. So maybe in Starting with evidence instead of assumption, we can all do two things at once. You know? So in this episode, we can learn about the discussion of satellites instead of the way conventional society operates in this assumption about satellites, right? So we can actually give people some subjects that they can research on their own. Yeah, something to start chewing on, exactly. But first, let's get... On the onto the feedback from issue 17, which was our our last issue about satellites, 
And Headfloss got hung up a little bit on our slightly off-topic discussion about the state and what is America and is it even real, you know, this kind of discussion. I think Headfloss said something like, you know, we need to check our framework here and be frank with the readers about who we are and why we're talking about all this. So is that do you think that's a fair request? Yeah, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier, trying to, I guess, just make more sense in general to everybody. Right. Yeah. Most of our guests last time were probably coming from experiences as white people. So that's going on. And I think he had a concern about, like, what is the framework there? He wanted to put us in in racial framework. And... I I guess my honest response to that is I don't know if that's so important here because you know I've discussed this with people of all uh, so-called races, people of all backgrounds within culture that I'm I have access to, which is Western culture, English-speaking culture, some Italian-speaking culture. So that's where I'm coming from. You know, I'm not speaking with small tribes in Southeast Asia or whatever. You know. I don't have, no one from there is probably listening to this. Yeah, we're pretty multinational, that's for sure. At Clues Forum, that's quite amazing. Yeah, multinational, but, you know, and we could name those nations within Western society. Well, yeah, I didn't say multicultural, did I? (laughs) I mean, it is, I mean, it is a specialized group, that's for sure, but... Um, everybody's welcome and we we get all sorts. Yeah, it's, I think that's true. We we try to make the episodes accessible to any English speaker or who who can understand what we're talking about. It's not in we're not inviting a specific cadre of of uh of people in the world. We want if we could speak every language, we would undoubtedly be, you know, doing that. In every episode, we'd be saying, here's what, you know, but that's up to people who want to bring it into their home culture. Was there something we said specifically that made him come to that opinion? Uh, Yeah, it was farce value talking about what is America? What does America mean? It doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to be anything. It doesn't seem to be. It seems to be a fiction. And I'm not sure why that was a why that was a trigger for head floss, but I think it might have had to do with this idea that farce value was coming to a realization that maybe many people haven't had to uh, struggle to come to realize because it, from their perspective, the fiction of America has always been a dubious concept. And it, it it's never been this idea that, oh, the nation is absolutely this you know specific pax americana or whatever you know whatever doctrine of discovery promotes as america or the constitution it's always been in an invading force or it's been considered actually the land as as the main character not the legal framework and so if you ask different cultures what is this place that we are because uh, Kay and I both happen to be on the American continent, then you'd get different answers. I'm not sure why that was such a big hang-up for him, 
or but I think it's just something he's studying right now, and he and he, so he feels maybe we need to do a check on that. I guess we have to say what is America first before we know what we can check on. I mean, is it the people? Like you said, is it the government? You know, is it just inhabitants of the lands? Well, and so I think maybe if you back up a frame, we are answering it from our own perspective, right? And so then I think it was his idea to invite us to talk about our own perspective and, and explain why why you're here, why you're here in this talk. You know, what brought you to, what culture brought you to this discussion and who who are you trying to reach out to? Well, I guess, you know, like, I'm I'm out to free everybody of their culture. That's my goal. I want to free you of the culture because I think culture is man-made. It's not what we were given, like media culture. And I, I mean, really deep down, that's what I want to do. And I just listened to Chris's afternoon commute with John Adams. God, mm. it was good. Oh, my God. It was a really good one, mm. his latest one. And that's a big subject, you know, how we are continually manipulated by this false culture. Okay, okay. But so then false culture is different from genuine culture, right? Authentic right. culture. Right. If you don't see it on TV, it's probably authentic culture. It's what I'm saying. That's interesting. Yeah. It seems like when authentic culture gets on TV, you're saying it, it gets distorted or even turned on its head completely. On purpose, bastardized on purpose, used as a weapon against us on purpose is what I'm saying. Well, that brings me to this idea that we actually can't ever escape culture. We are always in some kind of culture. That's that's just the nature of being alive and being human and going through our daily motions and such. And so even the culture which is destroying other cultures is itself a culture. It's, it's a, it's a, yes. it's a destructive culture. Right. But it's a top down culture. It's not a bottom up. Right. Okay. So when you say you want to free people from their culture, what you're saying, what I'm hearing is a positive thing. I'm hearing you say you want to invite people to protect their authentic culture from this dominating thing, which is uh, a foreign culture. It is almost by definition a foreign culture to every authentic culture on earth. It's it's this kind of homogenizing, destructive element. It's kind of a a culture of empire or or. Ooh, culture of empire. Yes, it sucks you in with its stories and its tales. It's it's quite intriguing, but it's not real life. <laughs> and what culture are you protecting? that makes you even feel this is a relevant thing like aren't you part of this destructive culture i'm not accusing you of that mind you yes, i you know can't i help but be right we just i believe yeah. that you're a good person and that you are authentically representing yourself and exploring what it means to be a part of your culture but Maybe other people need to hear some reassuring words that you are not, you know, you know, you're not colonizing. Right. Culture. Um, what was I just going to say? It's, it's all about freedom. So first you have to understand that you're being manipulated. And then when you understand that, then you can free yourself up and really concentrate on what's important in your life. 
that's I guess. And then then you find culture. So, so you're talking to the people who are manipulated. Which we all are to some extent. We don't know it, but I guess the more you can become aware of it, the more you can free yourself of it. So you're saying that it's almost impossible to be using our culture to speak with anyone who is completely free of this manipulation. Everyone that we can reach using our iTunes podcast is on some level potentially a victim or is on some level a victim of this imperial culture. Well, I mean, once you believe a lie, aren't you a victim? Once you believe that lie, right? Hmm. Ah. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. But then the question becomes, yeah, so what is the goal? The goal then is to just reduce the amount that we're being manipulated? Yeah, yeah. The, and, and it's, you know, it's always a continuum. When I hear people say, oh, I woke up. No, you didn't. It's a continuum and it's a slow, gradual process. You might think it's black and white, but it's, you know, it's a cliff and then you jump. No, it's slow and it takes a long time. And if you think you jumped over that cliff, that that's a big clue. You're still asleep. Is Can we assume then that the goal is actually helping people just get into better habits or adopt a culture or a cultural practice from what they can learn from the show? That's Yeah, I like that. Yeah, develop a cultural pra- practice of... Um, um, being more skeptical, perhaps, you know, something like that. Okay. Well, let's define that. Is it is it just more skeptical? I don't think that's it. No. Pure, purely. Right. Purely, yeah. What else would there be? Um, it would be what what we wanted to talk about in this episode, which is helping people identify evidence. Any culture, any culture in the world to use their senses and identify aspects of reality that they can incorporate into their understanding of how the world is. I, th- I like that. Yes. It's a great goal. And and a major tool that we've discovered that I think anyone can use is identifying what information is fake. What information has the the human fingerprints on it versus the information which is purely from a natural non-artificial point and and it, this isn't to say this isn't some argument that there's an artificial and a natural that are mutually exclusive it, you know i think that we all acknowledge that everything on some level is natural but it's to point out that some things that humans create in order to fool other people or to fool uh, other beings but especially the the most difficult to fool maybe on some level is people and because we have all these we're constantly doing checks on each other one of the most difficult i should say you know there's all these different levels of what what beings process and as you say continuums spectrums well it also needs to be said you know like why people would fake it maybe there if People understand there's powerful motives. Maybe it would help them also understand that, you know, these big reasons behind it. What reasons would those be? I mean, obviously we have uh, this empire, imperial culture, uh, this dominating culture. Its reasons could be 
to subjugate and dominate. Yeah, how does empire stay empire? Um, well, it seems like it needs to constantly grow, and when it's fully grown by absorbing or devastating other cultures, it then turns around and eats itself over and over, and it just keeps, like, it's like a wave of some kind, and we want to push against that, right? So, well, I want to go back to the cultural thing, because I think that was the main question that Head yes. Floss was giving us. My culture is, it's been a strange continuum between different Western societies. I've gone between America and Europe and the frameworks that have been set up there for white people to, to thrive in the imperial mode and largely to ignore and forget its past to cover up its past with lies, which we explore and we teach people to, you know, overturn and examine. And it's taken a while for, I think, a lot of people to realize the extent to which they are in something that doesn't belong to them, like this, this imperial culture. And I think the imperial culture likes to conflate home cultures with the imperial culture, and television is an is a extremely powerful weapon for doing that. And so a lot of my culture has been, it, it feels to me, a kind of lonely culture of one that I'm a part of, living in resistance to that conflation, that that constant pressing of the dominant culture and i've only in doing that found snippets and bits of what i feel is more of my authentic culture which has to do with uh, permaculture and closeness to earth and other modern reworkings of very old cultural concepts of of living in a sacred environment so my home culture is something I'm still trying to find. I don't think I was born into it. Maybe people would accuse me of just by being born white in uh, the imperial culture that I I am in it. But I have never <laughs> I've never felt at home in it. Let's say. Uh, so I might be different as a white person in that regard because some people feel totally at home in it and uh they you know they're perfectly fine with the the racist uh, undertones of um of many dominant media pieces movies where you know people with color in their skin are are considered lesser or you know things like that i always had a problem identifying with that culture and yet by being white, I'm also identified by white and people of color people as being a part of it. And so, yeah, it's this strange thing where I I feel like one reason I'm here, the tribe, if you will, that I represent is a mysterious <laughs> group for me that I've never met, the members of which I keep running into, you know, here and there around the world uh scattered 
as maybe we are, if I can even refer to a we. And this group is a group which is, because it's so scattered and kind of alone, each in its own individual culture surrounded by dominant culture, we are exploring the, this, um, the process of, of escaping dominant culture. And part of this, for me, why I'm here, is an exploration that I want to share with others in case they too have felt this, that they might be part of an authentic culture that, that has been robbed from them and that they need to get in touch with. And hopefully we're giving people the tools and the means to um, identify the powerful cultural tools and cultural weapons uh, in dominant media, which are directly taking from them what they are most trying to find. Wow. I mean, I like your idea about, I mean, especially, I mean, well said, by the way, well said. But Thanks. your idea about making audios so that people can find them. Oh, you don't know how true that is. Remember that audio you did? Um, it was way back. How long ago was it on? Um, I think it was on. It was at the radio station one you did. Uh, KFAI. Yes. I must have listened to that a dozen times. It made so much sense. I couldn't believe it. It had been ages since I think I watched September Clues that anything I'd read actually made sense to me. <laughs> Thanks. I just kept listening. I kept searching for more. I need more. Where's more? I, I know there's more <laughs> to understand out there, and I couldn't find it. Well, what what it was, what what more was it? Did it make you seek the answers to like media fakery, especially? It's like all this doesn't make sense, and it it needs to make sense. Ah, I, mean, I see. Fakery. So you have the sense, maybe that I do, that um, that media is something that we can try to control and own and turn into something that makes sense and maybe that is is a is a cultural that's a whiteness maybe that is a cultural imperial thing that we've taken from empire you know empire would have us believe yes you too can you know be a part of this media but the more I look at it, the more I have this feeling that Empire will only give us as much of the media as as it will as it will fool us into thinking we can have more. <laughs> if that makes sense, they'll only give yeah. us a tiny little bandwidth. You know, like that that KFAI radio show was uh, a an experimental project of a great local radio station. Which, yes, gives voice to a lot of different people that are all trying to cram into this little bandwidth. And maybe on some level, many of the people who are, who participate in that are kind of going, well, here we are. We're using our little space that's been, you know, given to us, but not as many have the same sense of the, the sense that we have an upper hand, that we can actually turn it around, that we can bring it back to authentic culture in some way. Maybe that is part of our assumption as as people 
who live a bit of the imperial mode more than people who have been more successful at resisting it and, and separating it from their authentic culture. Maybe this is all we get. Maybe this little iTunes podcast is all we ever get and change. I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I like, I, I have, I share your belief that, <laughs> that, or, or the desire to believe that we can take over more and, you know, shame that media back into like proper behavior. But it, it, it seems so inseparable from empire. Mm. You can't stop empire, I've decided. <laughs> you can't? Oh, damn. No. But you know what? You can ig- try to ignore them as best as possible. You can check out. You can choose not to participate in Empire. But if enough people do that, will that stop it? I think they'll they'll go for the low-hanging fruit, the easiest to convert, unless it becomes a problem. Who knows? And then they'll probably ramp up their campaign. Sure, that Empire cannot not be Empire. So they would, I'm, but as of now, you know, our, our little bandwidth, you know, our tiny little podcast is clearly not hurting empire at the moment. Oh, maybe not. Maybe the, if our object is to hurt empire or stop empire, yeah, maybe you're right. But I like to believe that. I'm a teacher by trade. Hoy and you, you know, you can't. Everyone's not going to get an A. Why even fret about it? It's obvious. Don't even fret. It's just reality. But you know what? If you can just touch the kids who really need to be touched, hmm. you know, that's that's what we're there for. Help the kids who want the help. The ones who don't, why waste your time? It's not worth it. You, it's, you're a <laughs> fool if you think you can fix everybody. All right. That's, that's, that's a fair attitude. So then... I think the other question that's in Head Floss's mind all the time is by resisting this imperial culture in the way that we have, what culture are we? Are we a culture? And my response to him in person was no, we, you know, Clues Forum is more a meeting of different tribes a meeting of cultures that often disagree on things of you know traditionally liberal or libertarian or conservative or religious or uh, atheistic um dietary you know lots of little minor issues but we still meet together because everyone can benefit from being able to connect to their authentic culture and to learn to resist this unhealthy dominant culture that's fair help them to resist but maybe i just want to say a little bit about culture for a minute i mean what is culture it it's the daily habits and practices that people employ right so the empire wants us to do their culture they want us to drive through starbucks every morning when we get our breakfast Instead of make whatever toast and jam and coffee in our kitchen. They have, a, you know, they want us to spend money, our money their way. I mean, they, they have directives for us. But if I want to do my own cult- culture, you know, without advertising, without any 
impression, you know, from the empire and how I should spend my money, it'd probably be with my family. In the morning, I'd probably have more family practice. I'd probably be getting together with the relatives more often if they didn't intervene, right? So that's what we want to get back to. And us meeting at Clues Forum, that is kind of like we're making our own little culture here, right? Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Although everyone's way of accessing it is also totally different. So it, I, it's for me, I'm resistant to the idea, you know, I'm I'm open and resistant at the same time to the idea that we've formed a culture. You know, the the, the only culture that I can name that I that I you know that I'm aware of, in other words, is you and I agree to meet when we can, whenever that is, and it's not often, but it's you know at least uh, once a month most of the time. And invite some other people who we're familiar with as being people who show up at Clues Forum to discuss Clues Forum in, in a sort of to help people, you know, get if, if it's a culture of oh, it's weird. Is it is it a global culture that resists globalism? Is it a, you know what I mean? So I have a, I have difficulty saying that we've formed, um, a culture with a big C, you know, like. Right. No, you're right. It's a little C. I mean, Clues Forum is one of my cultural practices, which is a daily habit or practice that one does is that, you know, I, I come home from work and instead of watching the nightly news, I'll click open Clues Forum and see what the new posts are. Huh. It's surpa- it's supplanted my other cultural hap- practice that I used to watch the daily news. I don't do that anymore. Oh, that sounds really healthy to me. I mean, because l- let me ask you this then. How often has knowing the daily news actually done you any good? Like from the na- mainstream media, what what has it done to protect you and, uh, you know, give you good habits and, you know, has it? Has it ever? Well, it scares me a lot. I know that. Oh, okay. So it makes you afraid. And what else does it do for you? Does it does it help you cure cancer? It makes me want to purchase stuff because there's a lot of cool shit on TV, hoy. Oh, I okay. need to buy it. Does it make you feel connected to your neighbors? No, not really. Kind of disconnects us, I think. Why? Because instead of visiting each other, maybe yeah. having some dinners together, we're just all at home consuming media. I see. But but you're all consuming news of the war front, you know, as America leads its wars abroad, right? I mean, it helps us understand who those bad guys are, right? But some of those bad guys are lied about. That's the problem. Yeah. They tell us they're the bad guys, but then we're finding out they're fiction or it's somewhat of them. Their story's not holding up. Yeah. Interesting. But OK, so just continuing to play devil's advocate here, fully aware that, as Antipodian says in a Skype comment here, that white culture is one of consumerism and other cultures are exploited to facilitate and make affordable this consumerism. Interesting comment. You know, being aware of that, wouldn't you say that 
the benefit of tuning into the mainstream news is that you catch up on the the underlying communication that goes on attached to consumerism but isn't pure consumerism and what i mean is i need to explain this probably for example uh there's a toothpaste commercial that everyone is thinks is a joke it's stupid it hasn't sold any more toothpaste people make fun of the fact that they spent so much money to get this campaign out you know that is no longer consumerism that is culture commenting on consumerism and it becomes a meme and you know they lost money on that commercial you know everyone involved lost money and yet it's a part of the daily practice so in in tuning into the news don't you think you are gaining you know popular culture and that's like super valuable i can get it when i go to the grocery store or when i talk to my neighbors they can, i can see them have it then it's actually fascinating to check out of the news for a while and you know of media in general too and then watch people's new styles come and new practices and you're like oh wait that's on the tv a lot isn't it i see mm. why you're doing that now <laughs> yeah actually that's a really good point yeah it's fascinating to watch people's behaviors change based on uh yeah the questions they ask the uh the way in which they frame people who don't watch tv i just think sometimes oh i see so you just want me to sit in front of big bang theory and absorb all the cultural shaming you know that 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 show does with you know oh. th- this is reality this is not reality here's a person who belongs in society here's a person who doesn't act in accordance with society's un- unwritten rules and you know you know that's that's so funny to watch people directly download and incorporate that into their culture for sure that's it's yeah. odd Right, the Big Bang Theory, they teach you how to intellectually shame people. Absolutely. Really. Well, most sitcoms do, but that one is... Um, I can see why China uh, is said to have banned the show, because they they probably know. Like, this is nothing but uh, pure culture. It's yeah. in culturalization or something. It's indoctrination. Oh. Yeah, you know what's weird? How in, in, invasive American media is. You know the sitcom Saved by the Bell? <laughs> yes. It first aired overseas for like five years before it went on TV. Did you ever wonder why the, the actors were young, but then when you'd see the characters outside, they looked old? Uh, the understanding of celebrity didn't really kick in for me until a late age when I was like, oh, I see. So we're supposed to be following the lives of these celebrities, you know. But um, that's that's a very interesting point. I mean, I was in Jordan in, I forget the year, and it was playing. It was brand new in Jordan. Yet, um, these actors are already famous. So it was like weird. It's like, why is it? And then I realized it had been playing in America for two years. So I think these shows are, okay, yeah, show them in America. But what they do is they introduce the Jordan, te- the uh, Middle Eastern teenager to what, an American high school teenager is and does and acts like and says and, mm-hmm. you know, it's inculcating the culture. It's like vaccinations. So when they come from the Middle East to America, they already know what to expect and they're already 
they're all, they already know America. They know how to behave. They fit right in. They quickly lose their own culture because they got a hit start. Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, I don't know what more to say about what our show is and, and if, you know, we had Rochelle on and she's a person of color and I thought she didn't seem too terribly annoyed by us, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it makes sense. The stuff makes sense. So I, so sometimes I think Head Floss gets a little hung up on the illusion of race. Um, but I'm not sure because the, because the illusion of race is talked about differently by different cultures. So that's, uh, so that's a whole other discussion. And I'm not sure how much we need to focus on that. But um, hopefully this little segue is helpful uh, for people listening who are kind of like, what is this? Is this is this a, you know, is this a neo-Nazi group? Is this a is this a, you know, <laughs> I don't know what kind of confusion we'd be causing because I think that we just use English and maybe that sounds like we're talking from a point of view of empire. But I don't know. Well, you know what all Americans have in common is we all, most of us, is that we all went through the school system. Mm. And we all experienced the exact same, nearly exact same high school experience, regardless of what state you grew up in. I mean, it's bizarre. If you went to a public high school, they're nearly all the same. They follow the exact same patterns and they get you just ready for culture. You just, you know, you have your, your, your voting, your president when you're, you know, the president of the ASB or, you know, the student yeah. body and all those other um, elected people. You just, you get them all ready. They're all ready to go to believe in empire. That's, that's what we all have in common right there. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And the cultures, the authentic cultures that were showing up there and getting, you know, pounded into this dominant culture. They were often, I think they felt threatened and often didn't, you know, branch out and because there weren't tools for communication outside of that. No, uh, school is from empire. It's, it's supposed to pound it out of them. <laughs> That's yeah. what it's for. So exactly. they would just gang up. There'd be like the Vietnamese groups just hanging out with the Vietnamese. And I mean, there was some cross culture that just happens but it didn't facilitate it was no melting pot it was no it was no safe space for cultures to exist in harmony it was the opposite it was we're going to destroy your culture and hopefully in the wreckage there will be some kind of unity that happens because you've all been raped in the same way oh right that's the melting pot idea i think that's kind of what it seems like to me. Yeah, I'm not fond of at all. No. Let people celebrate how they want to celebrate. True. Well, so what is this so-called universal tool that we found that's so great that, that every authentic culture could use to defend itself from an alien culture? Why, why have so many uh, people from different walks of life, at least in Western society and as far as we've had them gathering at Clues Forum, you know, thankful for the research and saying, wow, yeah, this makes so much sense, even within empire, imperial culture. Right. Why, why, what, what are these tools? What, what have we found that has made people go, oh, I see, this helps us, you know, 
mm, discern rather than rather than uh, just toss the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. And I think that that we need to discuss what value there is that is being lost because i think some people who are like skeptical of the media they're just like yeah of course you know burn it all well, okay. so you said it the media i mean that's what we're talking about right that that you dare that clues forum dare speaks of it this is the empire's number one enemy is that we know they lie <laughs> they lie big they do and we know that and that's that's the, that's why we are you know we, I don't know how much bigger we can get, but hopefully really big. But we figured out they lie, and we have proof of it, too. That's true. So in a way, I mean, the more important uh, people to reach it is anyone who, whether they have connection to authentic culture or not, how do you say that it's the people who, um, I mean, we're talking to our own culture, the people who have been abused and saying like, I feel like we're almost like an underground railroad. Like it's, you're, we're, we're creating this talk about racially charged, uh, you know, terms, but it's like, we're helping people who are stuck in the system go find ways out, find, find a, and, and there's no like direction, you know, it's like you could go anywhere, just like dart in every direction, except, you know, towards empire. Just go home. Go to your true home, not this this uh, this monstrosity that claims to be your friend. Right? Yeah. Don't worry yourself about it. Like my students were telling me today. Um, oh, did you hear? Oh my God, they were so concerned. We're gonna go to war. Where I think it's this timely thing to mention this right now. They were they were distraught. A bunch. I have seniors who I teach, and they were quite upset about it. They're like, Trump's taken us to war. They just they just bombed Syria. They were very upset. Have you heard of that lately? No, I haven't heard of that. Um, yeah. That does make me think back to times that people said kind of nonsensically that Trump was going to change everything. You know, Trump was going to stop the bad dudes from doing bad stuff and seems like if you go back to you know clinton era bush era and you realize that their whole like plan to destabilize certain countries that they named over and over uh hasn't changed then you kind of realize that it doesn't matter who's in this executive uh, branch of the empire they're just an actor in a way they're meant to give us the sense that they have some power over it which they don't well it's so sad because these these um young boys were talking about nuclear war <laughs> they were actually concerned because the u.s in bombing the syrian air base they were saying also bombed some Russian jets, and now Russians going to retaliate against America. I'm like pumpkins. You don't need to. Don't fret about that. Those big stories that we're supposed to be plugging into. I mean, what is the main point of them? They make us afraid. They do give us some sense of how the empire justifies it, its behavior. And you know, if the empire starts justifying 
okay, we're going to we're going to start a war between a couple of the countries that we have here. You know, uh, let's start a war between Russia and America. Then I guess what at best it gives you is a sense that there's going to be another one of the moves that Empire does, possibly. It's not explained how or why, you know, all the all the bullshit is, you know, the reasons. The reasons are will not make any sense. They're not supposed to. They're meant to just start controversy and conspiracy theories and arguments and, you know, and to leave no choice but to just go along with the official story of why it's happening. I guess the whole usefulness of, of just learning, as I did from you, that this thing may be happening soon is that, okay, so now that's that will be an explanation for more of Empire's behavior. That doesn't change Empire. It doesn't stop it. It doesn't speed it up. It doesn't really do anything. It just tells us and gives us some kind of reassuring fake story about why and how it's actually good triumphing against evil or something like that. You know, That would be how I interpret that. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to go back to the evidence thing. How is it that we help these kids go, okay, here is where this information is coming from, and do you trust this information source? Because that seems to be um, Farce Value's main question. In the half hour mark or so of last episode, Farce Value said, how do people get their beliefs? Uh and it, it it it's not through examining the details, right? It's not through questioning the validity of details. How, so how do people get their beliefs? Why do they believe this is something that they should, uh, I don't know, be concerned with? They get their beliefs from the media. That's who they're the same people that might or might not be lying to them. Hmm. Don't they have a reason to be concerned, though? If I mean, let's say on a subconscious level, they recognize that uh, this is something they can't change, you know, and maybe the, the upsetting thing to them isn't the facts around, you know, why it's happening. Maybe it's just the fact that Empire is doing another shitty thing. Maybe that, you know, and so maybe they do have a legitimate reason to be concerned. It's like... It's like, okay, this war is starting. This is a problem. But then, but then you make a really good point that they're afraid of a nuclear attack. And that seems to be like one of the main things is like, this could affect them directly. And oh, it could. I mean, what if they bring back the, um, they could, it could actually, what if they bring back the, what do you call that? Where you had the boys have to sign up for the army? Ah, the, the draft. draft. Mm. Yeah. What if they did? Well, so. So then there's this thing, I guess. To fund their little project. Right. So let's talk about that. That sounds really funny. I, I can't imagine that happening. But if it did happen and they say, we need a draft to invade another country, which seems absurd, wouldn't we just be able to say, no, that's ridiculous? I mean, that, this is absurd. This has never, you know, in history been something we needed to do is, you know, prevent a country from existing. Yes, we've had problems where a country is expanding, and then we had a draft to go stop that country from expanding its own empire. But when has there been a draft to go stop a country from existing? Is that 
Is that what the concern is? No, I mean that they, you know, all the young people have to go to war and do something icky they don't want to do, and it's going to ruin their future. Hmm, I see. And their freedoms will be taken away. But what freedom is actually taken away from them in the declaration of war by America on another country? I mean, we we didn't have the freedom to stop this insane culture from doing what they do anyway. And we always have the choice of not going to war. I mean, that's a choice. You can just say, I am a conscientious objector, or you can say a number of things that just... Uh, it sounds like they're more concerned about peer pressure to get involved in a shitty situation, and they're kind of concerned that they can't resist peer pressure. Yeah. it's Well, you know, it's also, I believe, the strategy of tension, because... These boys, for some reason, even last year and the year before, were under the idea that maybe the draft might get started again. Hmm. So I don't know if they're being taught that in school or if they're reading it on the Internet or what. Hmm. But I, I do think it's a, a bit of a strategy attention to just it targeted at that demographic. Maybe it's the maybe it's authentic culture resisting empire by reminding the the new generation about the draft and how stupid it is. And by, by, you know, spreading that meme early, it's like an inoculation against the draft. You know what I'm saying? Like perhaps it's parents going, huh, this is a bit familiar. I'm going to warn my kids about this thing. And we're going to talk about the draft and what it was and how it was a mistake. And, you know, I, I don't know. That's just my, that's hope. a good idea. Yeah. I like that. Mm -hmm. Tell, tell those young boys. It's not what you think it is. I like to believe that we're learning.
how do you how can we tell people to discover evidence like why do we doubt satellites okay let's just get into the main topic why are satellites considered something that we can reject how is it possible to reject a cultural understanding as as uh, even if it is from empire and even though it does you know undermine our understanding of technology by giving us false information let's say it does do that why should we believe that's the case why should we resist information about satellites and how can we find out true information about it what's well, a scam <laughs> you're being taken you know it's a, satellites are a scam they're not real and if you know something's a scam then you need to protect yourself against it so again you have freedom of choice okay but let's talk about why yeah. we know it's a scam most people don't know it's a scam. Most people think, oh. oh, yeah, there's these things up there. They're, you know, thousands of miles away or they're just hovering in place or they're like rocketing around, you know, or whipping around the earth. There's how many? Thousands. Wait, what is the official number, isn't it? It's tough because uh, in my research, every website has a different number. So in the the, the thing, in the... The paper I sent you, I put like the est the best estimates that I was coming across, but it's like a thousand live satellites, and I think three thousand dead ones right now up in space hmm. are said to exist, and then uh, uh, millions of pieces of debris floating around from other satellites and paint chips coming off and gloves falling off of astronauts. I guess there's a glove up there floating around. Yeah, supposedly there's a bunch of junk. They call it space junk, and they make a joke of it. They say it's a real problem, and yet it doesn't seem to be costing a great deal of money. It, they, the things don't seem to be, what, burning up or encountering problems with ex simply existing in outer space. I think I need to preface, though, that it was a really hard decision to come to to understand that satellites don't exist. I mean, everything I've been taught, I love science. I believed in science. It was just, it was my freedom. But then I realized bit by bit, piece by piece, scam after scam, there's a lot of scams going on just for money that you can fake things and lie about things. So is it impossible to think if you're going to fake and lie about thing, it it might be something that gets on TV and gets pushed by the government and supported by yes, the media? Yes, that's it. You've hit the nail on the head. That's where people have a problem. They think that if the lie, if, if people, if it were a lie, if a fact were a lie, it would not get on television in such a big way. That's what people believe. They they seem to use that as one of their main filters. It's like, well, but I would have, it, it's, you know, if it's a lie on the internet, okay, whatever, you know, if it's a lie in a book, okay, whatever, but 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 lies on a huge scale don't get on TV because TV has proven, you know, that Jesus is doubtful and that, you know, it's, it's questioning religion, which is, you know, the stupidest lie. You know, that's that's kind of it seems where people are at. Yeah, it's it's tough to believe that. But, you know, I get it has to start with media fakery, really. You have to. And I'm I'm sorry, the government is exactly involved with media fakery. They go hand in hand. There's no difference 
between what President Obama says and the fake news we see, and they support each other's paradigm exactly. Yeah, yeah. As part of it, it does seem to be part of this imperial thing. It's almost like it—it uh, it is a culture, and I, I suppose if you're successful in the culture of empire, then you might not know what all the other people are doing. Except that you're all celebrating and kind of living in success. You're getting paid well or you're getting a lot of exposure. You know, you're celebrated, you're helded, you live in a nice house. You don't have, there doesn't need to be a conspiracy where everyone involved in empire culture gets together and, you know, smokes cigars and laughs at the rest of everyone. You know, it seems like it's more just a culture. Right. Empire smart. It doesn't have to do the day-to-day stuff. It got this big culture machine rolling, and it just kind of carries itself along. Yeah. So yeah. when you're questioning something like satellites, you, you're not just questioning a scientific fact. You're questioning an entire culture. And I think that's why it's so difficult for people to go, oh, wait, satellites actually don't make much fucking sense. Like, because... It's like asking people, well, should Disneyland exist? Well, should we have um, Mississippi River boats? You know, should we have should television exist? It's that level of questioning for them. Right. For me, the questioning it started in a math class, and it's funny too. It was put on by NASA. <laughs> They're the ones who got me to doubt them. <laughs> well, it's easy to doubt them when they're giving such. Uh, contradictory information, and then when you, and, and then when you present them with the contradiction in interviews, they are very dodgy. Yeah, very dodgy. Well, it was a summer institute at the University of Washington held for teachers. I guess a huge part of the NASA's budget is education. Huge. I think it's bigger than um, what they spend to go to Mars or the Moon and all that other non other nonsense. By education budget, you mean like the budget to send. NASA employees into schools and and lecture and give people, you know, stories. Yes. Okay. Hold classes, do seminars, things like that. Have summer institutes. And, of course, I loved space. I loved the moon. So we had to choose our own project. And I, this was actually, um, I, I, they liked it so much they made a website about it, along with, like, ten other teachers. But I was one of the few math teachers there. Most of them were grade school teachers who, like, you know, we had a paper airplane throwing contest at the NASA Summer Institute. But anyway, I came across this thrust equation. And as we were in, my project was putting a space lab in space or something. And I, I calculated all the thrust that was needed to get a space lab. Remember space lab? Oh, sure. It was uh, kind of like a mirror or... Yeah, it was... ISS. The pre- Preview to the ISS, right? And then, but as I was um, working out the thrust equation, it became clear that there's no way you can get a rocket past the atmosphere. Mm. Because it's not like you have an atmosphere, then you have no atmosphere, right? Mm. What happens is gradually, gradually, the oxygen molecules get farther and farther apart the higher your altitude. Mm-hmm. So what happens is anyone who builds a rocket knows thrust happens because it hits something and then pushes against it. Okay, wait, case, but uh, NASA will have us believe that it's 
the explosions pushing against the ship which launch it and it and the explosion doesn't need to expand against anything else it's simply the explosion happening and somehow that just uh creates more thrust okay so that's their their belief and that's what they're pushing right nasa can say what they want but rocket engineers they know different they know what reality is and reality is the less and less oxygen in the atmosphere that means the farther and farther the molecules are apart, the more thrust you need or the more fuel has to be spent to gain the same amount of altitude. All right. So it's a it's a steady formula. And it gets very exp- it, it gets exponentially more and more energy intensive to the point where you cannot even send out enough thrust to uh, to have it push this building, this building sized thing you know into the heavens there's there isn't a magic point as they try to convince us right and they they just run out of fuel there's they just can't go any further and they can't carry enough fuel to get past a certain point and so magically something happened and they created something new that had more thrust but really it's the same old shit and we're still not getting anywhere and if you ever watch a rocket, it always arcs back down to Earth. Watch any rocket take off. Yes. It always arcs back down to Earth. Well, let's talk about those two details because they seem important for people to understand. The the so-called formula that they had for this rocket fuel is always a is always a mystery. It's always kept a secret. They can never release it for, you know, reasons of terrorism or whatever, which is, you know, Pretty much the reason they never reveal any information is they say, well, it shouldn't be in the wrong hands, right? And we're, we're to presume they're the right hands. And the other part about the arcing is that the official story is that this is because it needs to get into orbit. And as the Earth turns away from the rocket, the rocket just naturally, you know, appears to be, you know, drifting away in coincidence with its turn to get into orbit however it calculates just as well to uh an arc that is the ship simply turning and there's no orbit element about it it's simply just turning in space you know beyond the thermosphere or whatever it's a perfect parabola hoy a perfect parabola it's coming back down to earth it got up so far and now it takes the same but reflective path back down to earth Yes. That's all that is. And it's a funny old illusion, too, that it's like the everyone go and witness this launch. Everyone can see it happening, but the magic trick is in the explanation. The magic trick is not the, the witnessing, but in what they tell you you are seeing. And it's similar to the, the rocket fuel. You know, nobody is allowed to have the rocket fuel to test. And to see its exact efficiency and how they load so much, uh, you know, BTUs or whatever into whatever they say it is into such a dense and heavy material as, uh, you know, liquid fuel. But it's, it's just kind of, um, it's the story. It's the story about it that is the magic trick. When we talk about evidence, I think what we're talking about is we, both skeptics and believers are looking at the same thing, but believers in NASA's lies 
always cite authority as their main argument. That's that's their that's their that's their determination of evidence. Is well, as you can see, this expert who is so much more you know better at understanding this aspect of reality than I am, and you are, and anyone says it's this way, and we simply must take their word. You know, no matter how much it would benefit them to lie, we must take their word because they are the expert and we are how the dare we? Yeah, yes. how dare we? Who the hell do we think we are? What the what the hell's going on here, Hoy? How <laughs> could we dare do that? I don't know. I mean, I guess I've just come to have my own brain over the over the course of, you know, my life. It's it's been strange because it, it's strange to constantly get the same ineffective answer from people from all walks of life. But I think it's because the empire, the the media of the empire, gives us the stories, you know? So I could meet someone in Australia, and I could meet someone in, uh, you know, Canada, and I could meet someone in Europe, and they would all give me, because we're all watching, you know, similar media, the media of the empire, they will all give me the same non-answer. They'll all say, well, NASA says it, or ESA says it, and so you have to go to them first. Yeah, that's a biggie, right? How many people from NASA or ESA understand you can't get into space? Oh, let me go back to that for just a minute. That that factoid, right, about the higher you get, the less oxygen molecules there are, and the more fuel you need to gain thrust, that's a fact of science. Okay, that's a fact. It's a physical. You can test it over and over and over again. Good and point. And come out the same way. That is what we talk about when we talk about evidence and science, right? We talk about what can be provable. What is? What can anyone who has access to reason and logic and math and you know the ability to understand and conduct that science experiment and get the result and analyze it for themselves? You know that that is evidence. I mean, we probably even use a vacuum chamber, right? Hmm, interesting. Take out half, right, half the oxygen and see see how where your thrust works. Yes, this is true. Although there's a funny thing about that, and that is when you put the kind of thrust that NASA says they're using in a vacuum, what you end up with is a non-vacuum pretty quickly because you're filling the vacuum with uh, a, a sort of not very dense, but you're filling it with a gas. Right. You'd have to use a balloon or something that doesn't add any matter or, you know, change things too much. But you could do it with a balloon and get the same effect. Well, there's many balloon. ways of designing experiments. I mean... A wheel on a rubber band, right? A fan on a rubber band could do the same thing. Yeah, and you can use actually vacuum, you know, like vacuum motors to uh, to suck and manipulate air to create effects that are similar to what they say is up there as far as a vacuum but but as far yeah but like sending a balloon straight up you know taking measurements of the air density with instruments like that that's that's something anyone could do and what they'd find is that yeah the air thins out Uh, i mean you don't even have to send a balloon you could just extrapolate from climbing a mountain and realizing that yes (laughs) this air is thinner you know you need to move a little slower you need to take breaks you can bring a barometer up if you'd like. Well, there you go. Just <laughs> climb a mountain. 
Sure, okay. But what about plenty of people who can't climb a mountain? They're not in any physical condition to do so. Where can they get the evidence that the atmosphere thins out? It's tough, right? I found some scientific papers on rocket scientists, which, you know, I'd assumed it anyway, right? But then I thought, I'd like to see this in writing, and I found it, but I didn't document it. I wish I would have. But it was in the 50s, by the way. It was in the 1950s. They had done all these rocket experiments yeah, trying to get rockets into space. They were having a hell of a time. They just couldn't break the barrier. They couldn't do it. I heard they were also exploding a lot of rockets on the bases, too. They were trying to launch them, and there would be something wrong with the way they managed the fuel, or something would vibrate incorrectly. It's just, when they talk about rocket science being hard, they're not joking. It's one of the most difficult sciences that we have. In fact, it's so difficult, we probably haven't ever mastered it. I'm tending, that's the evidence that I'm seeing, right, when I do any deep research at all. We have to we have to acknowledge, I think that any good scientist would acknowledge, that we always take things on faith. We take even the science on faith because th- there is no ultimate proof or ultimate disproof. There's only the conditions you set up, the variables you think you can account for, and then you just you write down the results or you record the results in some way. That's science. It's just constant testing, right? So we're, we're supposed to assume that none of us can do the tests as well as these experts and that they have spent the time conducting these things long enough. But what if there were, let's just speculate because we're talking from our experience and our belief that, um, you know, that the science doesn't add up. There, there was a science that they wanted to be true and they had, you know, only so many people in that field but they couldn't get it to work and yet they found they could fake it well enough and they had motivation to fake it uh what would stop anyone who hasn't had as much experience from believing it because these people are the experts and if the experts in a subject are lying about that subject uh that's kind of problematic for the whole concept of an open you know, science that everyone can benefit from. And look what they had to build on. They had to build on an already existing network of rocketeering. It was already there. They, you know, the same type of propaganda net, network that supported the rocketeering ef- efforts. Mm, just, it was right? the military, wasn't it? Because oh, that's yeah. who funded the initial, you know, experiments. And we're to believe that eventually uh, the military just kind of lost interest because everyone became aware of how it works, right? That's kind of this mythical belief about our society. Oh, the military technology just goes a civilian. And then the military just, like, wipes their hands and, you know, oh, there you go, guys. You you have at it now. We've got better stuff in the works. You know, we're the only government, like, I think, in around the globe whose space program isn't military, uh, officially not military. Officially, right? officially not military. How bizarre is that? I mean, think about that. Do, does our military plan to do a military mission into space? Hmm. Well, no, because obviously we're just a bunch of peace-loving, you know, people here. We don't, we don't believe in bombing other countries because they disagree with us. Oh, wait. 
Wait, wait, hold up. I mean, do you think the other countries believe that NASA's not secret military? Of course they do. It's like a running global joke. Americans, come on. People, uh, you know, maybe people who consume heavy media, you know, they think it's, it's all friend, friendly, but. Well, they, well, Disney helped promote that, didn't they? I mean, you have right in the beginning, Farrander von Braun, you know, the preeminent rocket scientist from Germany, from, you know, the Nazis, adopted in America, you know, incorporated into fun family films about understanding rocketry. It seems that, it, now, this is just speculation, forgive me some speculation in our, in our, you know, intense discussion, but doesn't it seem to you like the Nazis had to be shown to be A, evil, and B, reformed because of C, America's inherent goodness, right? So not only did Werner Braun, von Braun come and say, oh, yes, we were, you know, we were researching uh, rockets for the Nazis because they were a bad military, but now we're not involved in the military and we're just making rockets because they're so cool and the future and you know and the future of the human race is in space and thank you america for showing me the correct way to think about this military application i mean uh, proper human scientific endeavor you know all right that's he was a good little german monkey boy wasn't he he was yeah he was such a he was such a cooperative, nonviolent man for you know, oh, yes. inspiring everybody, you know, with his with his ingenious rocket formulas, which he just tried so desperately to explain to the public. And with his Disney animated cartoons as a guide, yes, it was wonderful, wonderful blend, you know, of the Disney and early rocketry, and that's how it started, honestly. So. That's probably part of why America believes rocketry is fun and for kids and, you know, it has nothing to do with the military. It's actually anti-military. You know, there's this kind of weird belief that, oh, when we go into the stars, you know, and we become these Star Trek gladiators, you know, roaming through space or whatever, that that's actually going to cure us of all the military problems because now we're in space and right. we're and we're futuristic and we've learned more and we've evolved and and we're star trek not star wars oh yes yes we can be star trek give each other you know peace and love yeah yeah which is great i love to believe in peace and love and so forth but um it's just funny to be it'd be like it it'd be like if there were a show about shooting people with love guns you know it's like oh yeah, we got into the future and then, you know, guns just became kind of like cool, loving things and we didn't really use them for violence anymore. Yeah. It's similar with rockets, you know. Oh, yeah, rockets. We, um, yeah, they just like, they achieved uh, space and then now we don't use them for, uh, you know, for violence except when necessary. And it's just a, a slight utopian future, don't you think? They try and promote. NASA. And I think there's there's aspects of it that creative sphere where there's probably anti-military types, you know, working in that creative sphere, and there's also more cynical types working in that creative sphere. And so you end up with shows like, um, yeah, Star Trek and 
maybe Twilight Zone featuring rocket travel and and things like that where it's a mixed bag of okay here's the science and they call it hard science which is hilarious you know this is hard sci-fi it's not like your it's not your unicorns and your fantasy man this is real this is real this is really going to happen and it's happening tomorrow we're going to live on mars you know it's intertwined that's the problem how can hard science be so intertwined with entertainment isn't that troublesome to people Mm, yeah, I guess not. They, they, we have this belief in entertainment in America. I think to answer Farce Value's question about where do people get their beliefs, it's what entertains our minds, what titillates our fancy. This is kind of where we go. We like to say, well, yeah, what we want to believe in is real. And some aspect of that may be true, but some aspect of that may be uh, being perverted by a military imperial culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Invaded. So uh, maybe we can take a break really quick, but um, after that, do you want to go through that cool document you wrote about satellites and help people understand satellites are redundant and probably don't exist? Yes. Now that we've kind of explained and gone over why it's possible they could be faked and what motives there are behind faking it and... Yes, and where we where we stand in our little culture of exposing this idea. Yeah. yeah. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Why did you write this? Because I was looking for more hard evidence, I guess, more more something that makes sense. So in looking for something that made sense, I found more stuff that didn't make sense. <laughs> I see. So what you've done is you've written up a kind of report on the state of satellites. It's almost it's almost a September clues of satellites, but it's just a eight page document. And I think it, it would be a good guideline for us to some of the ideas of what satellites are supposedly doing anyway, and and how and who and what is managing the whole uh, the whole money making aspect of satellites, which is let's face it, their main aspect. It's about money. Okay, yeah, I can read it. We already know about how oxygen molecules get further apart, making thrust less efficient preventing satellites from getting into space. But there are a number of other things that also don't add up about something floating around in space. Oh, we were going to add to that, too. Yeah. Let's do that now. Okay. Well, one thing I can think of is radiation. Look, we're just taking NASA's own word on this, but it's supposed to be so deadly and so powerful that it erases film... It causes malfunction and problems with any sort of electronics up there. And so supposedly these things have to be shielded, right? With lead or something important like that. 
Yeah, I I was told by, well, let's just say someone who claims to have worked on the Cassini project that in order to shield these things, you need them in like, you know, three feet of lead. And I thought, well, that's odd. Why? Where is that lead on all the satellites that are supposedly in orbit? He didn't have an answer for me. How could he? Because <laughs> it's absurd. But then why did he tell me that, you know? It's like they have to give you an explanation, but they're not used to being asked the follow-up question. They like they have a canned answer they know, but... Yeah. yeah. They want the canned answer, and that's why they love the TV, I think, is because there is no talking back. Right, right. Three feet of lead. That's expensive, by the way, to put stuff in a rocket ship and move it up. I mean, don't even planes. It's expensive. The more you put in a plane, doesn't it cost a plane more in fuel? That's true, yeah. It's extremely cost prohibitive to launch something into outer space. And I did a quick calculation about the supposedly 17,000 satellites that are supposedly up there. Now, just a quick thing. Bear with me here. There's a lot of different numbers about what's supposed to be up there. But if you just say we've been putting satellites up there for, I don't know, a hundred years. That means you'd have to have 170 launches a year. Does that compute for you? That's almost a launch every other day with a successful satellite deployed for 100 years. Now, I don't think we're supposed to have been there for 100 years, and I don't think there's a launch every other day. So, Right. The numbers I came across were 1,000 live satellites and about 3,000 dead ones. So 4,000 total. Well, let's say we've got 4,000 up there, and we've launched that number on average an even amount for, what should we say, since 1950? So let's just put mm, about 70 years. That's 57 successful deployments every year. I, I don't think... They're supposed to even be doing a launch every single month, are they? Or if they announce it, it's often about weather delays or, you know, some exclusive thing. And it has nothing to do with putting a satellite up there. It's just about doing some general repair or whatever. Anyway, it doesn't seem to add up. The sheer well, the, Right. Who's putting all them satellites into space, hoy? Well, uh, apparently um, SpaceX will be doing that now, right? Will be. But we still have several thousand unaccounted. Yeah, it's it's odd. The numbers are very strange. And then how much do you think a rocket launch costs? Is the rocket refuelable? <laughs> well, according to the latest searches, it could cost up to $500 million every single time they launch it. Wow, to get into outer space? $500 million per launch? To get into space. That's pricey. That's a lot pricier than I thought. Well, forget it. I'm not doing it now. I have to change. Ah, but SpaceX is going to change all that. They're going to be doing better accounting. Uh, maybe it will only cost $100 million per launch. Oh, thank God. Now it's affordable. <laughs> oh, yes. We've just sliced that into uh, six pieces, and now we can launch six satellites for the price of one. Um, What I heard, and a way to... Well, what I read on the internet, a way to make it cheaper is that satellites will be in their own little booster. Instead of the rocket placing them, the rocket will go near space but not into it, 
and then shoot a little thing, which is its own little rocket. Well, then that will place the satellite. Hmm. They're not there yet, but they're trying. The funny thing about all this is, let's say we're back to our 55 or so launches per year. Presuming each one of them costs $600 million per launch, we're talking about $34 billion a year just to launch them. Okay? Now, imagine how many launches they must also be having going on uh, to repair these things. Oh, there's no repair in, in effect as yet. Yeah, no satellites are getting repaired right now, but there's plans, and we'll talk about that later. Okay, but Kay, are you telling me that these things are, like, self-repairing? They can change their orbit in outer space? They have propellant, which is supposed to be a directional propellant, and uh, it lasts, you know, like a fire extinguisher. It has a certain amount of propellant in it, and once it runs out, then the satellite can no longer maneuver to keep its orbit. Can you think of any other funny contradiction about outer space? <laughs> we should explain the free expansion idea. Okay, let's let's go over that, because we've gone over that a few times in other space episodes, but it, it's worth repeating every single time. Space is so giant that... Whatever you open into the vacuum of space, it gets, it has almost no effect because space is so ginormous that it will instantly equalize with the vacuum, thus rendering anything you open in space not movable immediately. Something like that, right? Okay, yeah. I think that's a pretty good summary. In other words, potential energy of things is very much in question. You know, there's potential energy and kinetic energy. And the potential energy of of fuel is uh, extremely problematic in their explanation. That ties into another problem, which I, which I still don't understand why they have no explanation for this, is that without molecules to diffuse uh, heat, you're just gathering up that sunlight. You know, if, you're, if your device is in the sun... You're just going to heat up and heat up and heat up until you're melting, exploding, just whatever you have to do as a body of molecules in a sheer vacuum with no way to coexist with other things, you know, no way to shed energy or or um, share it with other things. So basically what you end up with is in the sunlight, anything in the sunlight is fried very quickly. And anything in the shadow is frozen very quickly. How is it that these things are supposed to be up there with no protection like that? Like, what kind of possible shielding could you have? So the thermodynamics of the whole thing doesn't really make sense to me. I remember in the 80s, it was a discussion in, in space about what to do about that. You know, how to transfer heat or cold from one side of a spaceship to another. <laughs> And it was in a lot of the um, sci-fi books I was reading too, but I guess I guess real space. Oh, they solved it though. To, you know, they solved it. Yeah, this aluminum body to because that transfers heat and cold real well. Uh, but it transfers heat in cold molecules, correct? I guess once it hits the aluminum, isn't that the heat? So my point what is, what about on Earth? Where, yeah, I mean, can you heat something up in a vacuum? in uh, 
and have it dissipate its heat? Probably. That would be the experiment. How, how do people dissipate heat on or items dissipate heat on Earth? Well, they're not in a vacuum. They're surrounded by other molecules. So the constant input of heat is diffused by the ions giving off their energy to the molecules around them. But when there is no way to transfer those ions, uh, unless they're just meant to just be, you know, going out into space, which I guess might be more efficient, it might be less efficient, I'm not sure. But the point is that NASA brings up this problem multiple times, and they say that they have a complex solution, but I haven't heard one that really makes a great deal of sense with um, all the other problems that are supposed to be going on at the same time. It seems like it's another one of those magic formula things where they can't tell us how they've done it, and they often remind us how difficult it is to have had solved it, but they have solved it, and they can't tell us how. Right, like how do they move through space when previous movement, and like according to the rocket science, is always thrusting off of something. That's why they call it thrust. You're thrusting off of something. You're hitting something, and it's making you move forward. How come there's no longer thrust needed in space? I mean, the the physical principles are completely different, but yet they don't explain. I mean, that explanation you gave about molecules bouncing off of inside the fuel compartment or something is the ludicrous because it it can't be repeated on Earth, so it, it can't it doesn't make sense. But yeah, but right. So we're supposed to because we can't do the experiment on Earth. We have to believe that all the experiments that have been done off Earth just work the way they say they do. And it, again, is that problem where there is a small group of people who have access to the only time humans have ever done these kinds of experiments. And that concentration of knowledge is obviously problematic if we want to try to bring the science back to Earth, as it were. Right? It's like the moon lander. You know they never practiced it before, ever? Mm -hmm. The first time the moon lander worked was when it landed on the moon. Do you know how they That's... explain that achievement now? How? They say, we are all still amazed that we did it. Oh. <laughs> that is literally their explanation. They're like, yeah, it's totally unlikely. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. Isn't it great right. that we actually did it? You know. Oh, that's... my gosh. It's it's such a farce. There's a video out there. It's called the um, NASA did of they were trying to replicate what they did on the moon here on Earth after the fact. And they concocted this device. It looks like the moon lander, but they call it the Morpheus lander or the Morpheus something mm. to try and get ready for the Mars trip. And they couldn't get the damn thing to work. It just it wouldn't land. It wouldn't stay stable or straight. It was. It's. It shows you the moon lander was just not going to work with that that design. It's really hysterical. Oh, people. So can that be evidence too that we can't get into space because we can't replicate what we already said we did? Yep. There's a lot of problems with the official explanation, and there's a lot of humor involved in buying the official explanation, which some people, for their sense of humor, I suppose, it works for them. It doesn't work for me. But let's get into your document now with the page two about how absurd the space program and the agencies involved really are. 
orbital slots. Oh, yeah. You want to get a satellite into space? Well, the International Telecommunications Union, or the ITU, is the body that regulates orbital slots of satellites. Well, and they also do radio frequencies around the world. And they actually started with the telegraph. Hmm, what a coincidence. Now, the ITU is the United Nations Specialized Agency. The United Nations people is in charge of our satellite slots when where they go. Okay, so a slot is, explain to me again, what is that? It's, it's the altitude that satellites live. Hmm. So it's like, they're kind of like air traffic controllers, I guess, of satellites, if you want to put it like that. So that satellites don't bump and they each have their own zone and their own. Right, so they get an X and a Y and a Z, and those are the coordinates where they kind of are, that's their territory that they are assigned. Correct. So you can't even get into space until you get your orbital slot all straightened out with the United Nations sub-agency, the ITU. What did you find out about the ITU? Well, they were founded in Paris in 1865 as the International Telegraph Union. It took its present name in 1934 and in 1947, then became the specialized agency of the United Nations. So I like how it's like around the 50s, you know, they're like conglomerating their big lie, and this is the perfect part of it. Yes. Is there any direct evidence in your investigation of them which points to the idea that they are lying? Or could it be a gray area? What makes up the ITU is basically all the governments that go into space. Wait, so it, all the governments that go into space? Well, yeah, like, you know, the United States, Italy, you know, and a lot of nations are part of the ITU, even if they don't have satellites. And some corporations are also members. But I thought the USA was all about, you know, we're so on top of this, we control this, uh, you know, we, we're unilateral, we make decisions with nobody's input. Yeah, right. Well, I guess the United Nations, you know, aren't we behind them in the first place? <laughs> hmm, interesting. Yeah, that would be a very good topic for another show. So it starts with them. You have to um, be in one of these giant first world nations or a supporting nation or a big giant conglomerate to first be able to put up a satellite. <laughs> so that's to be expected, right? A nation is equivalent to a giant conglomerate. All right, but... So then your next point is about space debris and investment opportunities. Well, what about space debris? Many agencies are worried about dead satellites or pieces of satellites loose in space, whirling around the globe at 29,000 kilometers an hour like bullets, destroying everything in their paths, including operational satellites. Depending on the source, satellite collisions have occurred about six times from 1994 to 2016. That's uh, one every other year, something like that? No, it's even more than one every four years. Anyway, it's very small. As of 2017, there are over 1,000 live satellites and over 3,000 dead satellites in space, according to some citation. Space debris is another issue. In the collection of space debris, besides dead satellites, there are spent boosters, misplaced gloves, paint chips and fragments from the disintegration, erosion, and collisions of old satellites. According to the United States Space Surveillance Network, there are more than 21,000 objects larger than 10 centimeters orbiting the Earth, including live and dead satellites. 
It's estimated there are f a further 500,000 bits and pieces between 1 and 10 centimeters in size. Oh, shoot, that really is like a bunch of bullets flying around. And of all this, there still have only been about six satellite collisions with space debris since 1994. The larger concern was that one rogue dead satellite hitting a working satellite would cause a chain reaction, not unlike a nuclear explosion, I guess we're meant to assume, that would then collide with all the other satellites, destroying an entire orbital slot with worth of satellites, and most likely everything beneath it, as this massive pile of debris then decays and rains down havoc and satellite bits on us all. <laughs> this is called the Kessler Syndrome, named for Donald Kessler in 1978. Luckily, Donald had the imagination, before any satellites had actually collided yet, to conceive of a scenario in which the density of objects in low Earth orbit is high enough that collisions between objects could cause a cascade, where each collision generates space debris that increases the likelihood of further collisions. You know, like in the computer-generated movie Gravity, with computer-generated actress Sandra Bullock. Yeah, I never saw that, but... That was that was basically a simulated demonstration of what we're supposed to believe is possible up there, right? Right, what, and what we're supposed to fear is possible. Yeah, what's about to happen is something is going to come crashing down. What is it, the ISS? Right, yeah, and then all the other satellites, and it's it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare waiting to happen. We need to be afraid every day because of that, ahoy. Oh, dear, but wouldn't it all just burn up and then we could start over because we've got, you know... 30 billion dollars to to burn sending this shit up into space anyway well you know what because of movies like independence day where people think their cable comes from satellites but it doesn't it comes from terrestrial cables and then you know receiving and sending stations nearby um people think they might lose their tv ah! <laughs> oh no they they don't want you to lose your tv people don't worry about that tv is how they program you Yes, beware. <laughs> That'd be great if all the TV went away. That'd be awesome. We should pray for that day. Who can cash in on cleaning up and alleviating this potential massive chain reaction that could potentially cost satellite owners billions of dollars? And that is a real number based on our own just basic summary of the average price of launches and everything. There have been dozens of private companies with satellite debris removal business opportunities who wish to capitalize on the removal of dead satellites. So far, none have been commercialized or gone past the test in space stage. Interesting. Many of these companies' investment proposals have stopped at up-glossy business plans and entertaining computer-animated videos of their space machines in action. Hmm, so they're kind of like NASA. They like to make computer-animated cartoons of their stuff. For a potential problem that has not happened yet, satellite owners are hesitant, it seems, to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for a scenario that has not happened, so investors are not taking the bait. The other type of customer would be a satellite owner whose satellite has stopped working on account of losing orbit because propellant has run out to correct the satellite's course. Services for these satellite owners would be the refuel or re-propellant satellites that are dead in space. Even these satellite owners have not put forward capital to get their satellites up and running again, Hmm, I guess they just find it worth it to, you know, hobnob with NASA and who knows what kind of, you know, things are getting rubbed together to make it all happen. Since no private investors wanted to cough up the cash, perhaps a government agency could foot the bill. 
The first official data satellite revamp or removal program that was actually put into action comes from DARPA. Taxpayers to the rescue. Wow. So what's that about DARPA making the, uh, a revamp program? Guess, um, yeah. I, I just, what, what are they doing up there? I don't know. There's been so many companies and, and, um, conglomerates trying to get up into space and capitalize. But if we stop for just a minute and consider the possibility that satellites don't exist, right? Well, but don't make me consider that, Kay. I don't want to. That, you're crazy. You're, you're one of those people that's crazy. And you're talking crazy conspiracy things. And I don't want to hear it anymore. I just want to watch the Big Bang Theory. And feel smart about what you know. So what's really going on then if there's no satellites? What's, you know, is, are there really a bunch of satellites up there? I mean, why would they give us all this information? Probably because they're really there. And the only way they could possibly fool everyone is with some kind of sci-fi hypno device that, that we're all, you know, wear your tinfoil hat, people. Protect yourselves from the hypno device that's, uh, oh wait. No. No, it's probably just made up bullshit. Made up bullshit. I mean, they wanted to get stuff into space. And like we talked about last time, it's real handy if you say you have a satellite, but you're using terrestrial cable anyway. There's a, the air of secrecy to that. Yeah, that's true. But um, aren't we like, you know, pulling the rug out from that secrecy by talking about it? Wouldn't they want something that's a bit more safe from, you know, the danger of iTunes podcasts? <laughs> well, I don't hear anyone else talking about it barely. So there's not many of us. So we're kind of on the, you know, fringe here. So I, I don't think we're a worry yet, but. Well, so what can, what kind of situation can we expect to happen once the satellite discussion makes it big? Do you think they might, uh, start picking us off with, with, no, snipe, I don't, with snipers? I, their machine and their propaganda is so giant. We are nothing but a thing, darling. We are not a worry in their sights at all. We don't have to worry. Yeah, yeah, probably true. I I suspect they'd just do the normal thing, which is pretend it didn't happen. They'd probably cause a Kessler syndrome in the media and say all the satellites burned up and whoops, sorry, you know, right. we didn't really, uh, you know, there was some some evil bureaucracy you know there's there's always some way out of their silly lies some way right but i mean you know once you have satellites up there and once you start the scam um people in the know are gonna you know it's pretty easy to continue that scam and then what i think is like the strategy attention is huge in america i think they use it in all governments use it as a way to control the people is that you keep you keep them worried all the time keep them worried and part of the the whole junk in space you know i can see the government thinking about it going yeah more bits more pieces add more bits yeah make it really bad and you know i think they have a reason to try and worry us about what's in space I see. That's a much more uh, likely explanation. It actually is useful to give us details that don't go too far, but which satiate like the average person's curiosity. Right. I mean, there's a ton of things that could be happening up there with satellites, right? They could be going out into space. 
no, let's make sure they rain the hell down on us, right? Hmm, right. The hopeful ones are like, what, Voyager that's, you know, supposedly exited the solar system and is now telling aliens all about us because aliens need, you know, our shitty satellites to screaming that here we are. Oh, and by the way, we have a lot of natural satellites also roaming around up there. It's not just the moon. There's a ton of rock and stuff up there also, if you want to look. Yep, it's been there, always been there as far as we know. Right, it's always been there. I mean, how else are you going to get pox on this side of the moon? (laughs) must have been hit by rocks from here, right? Oh, wait now. Let's not get into moon theory. Some say that was lightning, which... Ooh, electric universe. Yeah. Anyway, so it it sounds like they're building quite a case by telling us about all the satellites and the debris up there, but consider that it could be part of the strategy attention and consider that they have a purpose to just pack that space up there full. You know, if you're on the inside group and, you know, you're in the know, you figure out what's going on. But you know what? Our government is so clever. It compartmentalizes everything. So people don't people do not know what's going on. I think that's the main technology that's real that that we do not understand. The the big secret technology is their ability to compartmentalize in a military way and understand human psychology well enough to do so. Exactly. The Phoenix program announced on October 20th, 2011 was seeking to repurpose components from communication satellites operating in geosynchronous orbit. But as of 2012, when the Phoenix program officially began, there were still no takers to sign up for this United States governmental service. Perhaps because the price tag was still too high. Fancy computer-generated videos did not attract customers either, even giving their space machines cute little names like Astro. Astro! Astro! (laughs) As in the beloved dog from the space cartoon, The Jetsons. And it aired from 1962 to 63, and then again from 85 to 87. Oh, they had to work in some extra propaganda in the 80s. They're like, oh, we got got new ideas here. Right? Was that for the, um, you know, what's the reusable space machine they retired recently? (laughs) Oh, the shuttle. Shuttle. I think that was good to get the shuttle up and going. (laughs) <laughs> but unfortunately, the Jetsons naming it um, the little machine Astro, like the dog in the Jetsons, it did not invoke the lovable memories or incline the decision makers in their 50s to open their wallets. Are you saying Astro was a bust? It was a bust. Oh. And Astro is an acronym for Autonomous Space Transport Robotic Operations. What a stretch. That's okay. We have to forgive <laughs> them their little puns. And it was designed by Boeing, by the way. Hmm, Boeing, yes. The same airplanes that supposedly crashed in 9-11. Yes, interesting. They're they're probably not involved in the military. They're probably not involved with the government at all. Yeah, they have a military section. Shh! No. (laughs) So DARPA continues to make fancy computer-generated videos of satellites engaged in debris removal to sell their Phoenix program but still have been unable to find actual customers. Even backed by U.S. military, customers are not banging down any doors to inquire about satellite refueling needs. Oh, there you go. That's the military in space, DARPA. Ah, I see. There you go. It's not NASA. It's DARPA, so it's, it is the military. 
It's funny that you say that because DARPA, I thought, was also part of the experiment of computer-to-computer networking, i.e. the start of the Internet, and the start of SAGE, which was the anti-aircraft purpose of the Internet, which was to have, you know, automated weapons all working together at different points across the United States. Interesting, huh? They... They have some computer-generated skills they could bring to the uh, astral project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is fun. Yeah, I was going to do that. I was going to look at what does DARPA do mainly. What well, is there? In, our, in our research at SeptemberClues.info, um, we have put what we found about DARPA, which is very interesting. Anyone who is curious about the historical development of 9-11 and what precedences there are for uh, a hoax of a very large technological nature should check out the historical development page of SeptemberClues.info and read for yourself. On to propulsion of geostationary satellites in space. In order to obtain a license to provide telecommunication services in the United States by way of satellite, the FCC requires all geostationary satellites launched after March 18, 2002, to commit to moving to a graveyard orbit at the end of their operational life. This means that all geostationary satellites put in space today must have some sort of propulsion system. The old method of moving satellites in space is a propellant propulsion, as in shooting propellant out of a steel bottle like a fire extinguisher, which makes the satellite move in the opposite direction. Supposedly. you know, We've already talked about some physical problems with that. But anyway, this is the official story. This technology is demonstrated quite nicely in the Disney Pixar movie WALL-E. Yes, that's true. And many other space-type shows. I think Doctor Who and uh, Star Trek and other shows featuring things in space, you know, rescuing themselves. There are two main types of satellite propulsion, propellant and electric. The old type of propulsion is propellant. The most used chemical in these type of propellant satellites is hydrazine. One of its main uses back on Earth is to put bubbles in plastics to make them foamy and less dense. Sounds like a hydrazine business proposition got made, you know? <laughs> like, hey, I got this uh, hydrazine thing going on. Maybe there's some way we can work that into our story. What's an expander? You know, it expands when it it's released from pressure quite mm-hmm. a bit. So it's valuable that way. Well, look, these gangsters, they have to understand a little bit of science before they work it into their their bullshit. So, it's also added to jet fuel and a whole host of other applications. Toxic and deadly, the world produces over 100,000 metric tons of it yearly. Hydrazine is quite a reactive liquid, so when the hydrazine liquid is exposed to atmospheric pressure and normal ambient temperature, it vaporizes quickly. This is the reason it is such an awesome propellant. Back on Earth, at normal temperatures and pressures, hydrazine is very reactive. Interesting fact about hydrazine is that it freezes at 35 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 2 degrees Celsius. So how can the propellant work in space? It only vaporizes in its liquid form. Tries to find how the hydrazine was melted into its liquid form so that it could be useful in space. Didn't meet with much, but patents and schematics ignore the issue. Once the propellant hydrazine runs out, the satellites can no longer correct their course. 
the last bit of remaining propellant should be saved for the satellite to move about 300 kilometers above their current position so they're not a hazard to other geostationary satellites, according to the FCC. This zone is called, among other things, the disposal orbit. The other type of propulsion in satellites, which is new technology, is called the electric ion thruster. Once again, we've already went over some of the problems with the idea of how ions operate in space differently, and we're not really sure about their proofs for that either. But anyway, moving on, ion sails from sci-fi things aside, ion thrusters use xenon gas and then charge it up with electricity like a neon bulb, and that is why you apparently see it light up in use. The resulting ion gas is then vented into space, and the satellite is supposed to move in the opposite direction. Geostationary satellites move through space using another application of light bulb technology. Yeah, that's what's in our um, a lot of our neon lights and xenon gas. Right. <laughs> and look how pretty the electrified xenon lights up in space. I mean, they could pretty much say that flashing light up there that you're kind of hypnotized by is is a propellant, right? Right, that has uh, an even amount of squirts every couple seconds. <laughs> yeah, right. It's just like kind of like... Constantly it, correcting its course. Yes, exactly. Oh, that reminds me of the story I wanted to tell. Um, just quick interjection. My poor mom, she had a, well, a supposed friend, a, an associate, let's say, that was out at night pointing to the heavens and pointing out things changing course in the sky and saying, see that? That's a satellite, and this is how they change course. And she was trying to tell me about it, and I was like, um, Mom, satellites don't make big curves like that. That's an aircraft. And she was like, oh. So, you know, unfortunately, that is kind of the level that people are at. Like, if someone in in the field claiming to be an expert says, hey, look at that light in the sky. Look what it's doing. Let me tell you about it. People are really wrapped. They want to, they want to learn about what those things in the sky really are, and they will take the best explanation they have, which is from hoaxers and tricksters. So that's uh, I thought that was kind of funny. Was it an expert satellite dude who told your mom that? Yeah, someone who works for ESA. But doesn't he understand what orbits are? I don't know. How could he say that? Well, I don't know, but I had the sense that maybe this guy was kind of testing this explanation on a safe target, if that makes sense. Because I think that's how they develop the lies over time, is they kind of, they test them a little bit within their own circles. And if the people that are working directly with satellites believe it, then they can move on to people who are only familiar with those wealthy circles or even just military or even just slightly connected circles and finally branch out to average civilians, you know? I'm sure the lies don't go untested. They're studying us all the time. I mean, that's the whole point of the science of psychology. So my guess is they were probably like, well, let's see how this works. And she bought it, you know? And he probably is taking in that information not how we'd expect, like, oh, the lie worked or didn't work. He's probably, like, studying much more closely. He's probably studying, okay, she bought it on some level, but on another level I need to refine this a little bit, you know? Just like the guy who worked on Cassini who was saying, oh, yeah, three feet of lead. And 
you know, you need to put three feet of lead around anything that flies through outer space to protect it from the radiation. And then I was like, uh, but how come we don't see three feet of lead on anything they send in outer space? And Did you say that? Yeah. What was his response? He was like, it's very complex. And then he gave me death stares all night. He didn't like that I was like trying to get to the bottom of this story, like this explanation and how silly it was. You probably connected two things in his subconscious that had purposely stayed disconnected. <laughs> it could be, you know, yeah, I might have been representing to him this like irritating thing that like he tries to put aside. So let's talk um uh what your mom said, why that's wrong. I just want to go over the physics of it. Yeah, right. Um, so why satellites don't bend in space as they're in orbit, why they don't change course, why they don't slow down and speed up. Because they're stuck in their orbital slot. Yeah. Not only by assignment, but by physics. Right. It's like a, um, it's, um, they're like a air traffic controller. If they did that, they'd be bumping into other satellites. So they, everyone is stuck in their spot and they have to rotate exactly according to those, that rule by the ITU. Not only that, but supposedly, if we are to believe they're as far out as they are, and I personally believe that some of these things are actually just aircraft or things much, much closer, you know, maybe 20 miles up, not 20,000 or whatever, then what you have is the problem of something changing its course so quickly that inertia would just show that that's not, you know, that would like cause really bad problems with the with the satellite with the sensitive equipment you can't have something like turning at such a sharp angle the way right and how can we see it i mean a geostationary orbit is tw over twenty thousand miles away so that's the only thing with an engine flare at this point otherwise satellites do not have running lights and there's no way to view any light on a satellite except for perhaps a glint that's when the sun during sunset or sunrise, the sun is said to bounce off part of the metal of the satellite. But that's just momentarily true. I mean, it might be if some, you know, rock was up there, you could glint off a rock even. Well, try seeing an appliance-sized device from 100 miles away. Now, try try seeing an appliance-sized device uh, a 1,000 miles away, and you start to get the idea of how absurd it is that a light in the sky is a reflection outside of Earth's umbra. It's, it has to be a... It has to be a massive thing, and it's probably yeah. more likely the asteroids and other things that have been recorded for centuries. Yeah, there's a ton of them. Anyway, let's move on to space law. Yeah. If you like space and you like law, be a space lawyer. Earn your space law degree today at the University of Mississippi School of Law, the University of Nebraska College of Law, the University of Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, California, at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law, at Northeastern University School of Law, or at the American University Washington College of Law, or the McGill Faculty of Law in Montreal, or at the University of Paris, um, SUD, and the University of Sunderland in the United Kingdom. One part of... And, Notice how many places you can get your space law. Yeah, there's a big there's quite a few. Not not maybe as many as you'd expect, but you know, there's 
for something that's supposed to be a big legitimate upcoming science, but okay, sure. All right. So one part of space law is about who owns what in space, who owns a dead satellite if you abandon it, right? It's like squatter's rights. If an owner of a satellite abandons it, then is it up for grabs? Can parts be taken from abandoned satellites and reused in space? So what if your properly working satellite was damaged by a dead satellite veering off track? There are currently conferences and seminars by space lawyers to try and figure out how to charge for satellite damages caused by other derelict satellites. If one has to come to the conclusion that satellites cannot exist in space, then it's rather humorous. It's a humorous scenario, I thought. But Yeah, it is. <laughs> right, the imagery of fake satellites hitting other fake satellites and then you getting sued for it. Yeah, that's so weird. But I imagine, you know, if the cases haven't really come up yet because it's not real or because, you know, they have to carefully craft stories uh, for public consumption about realistic human foibles that happen with human inventions, then... Yeah, it's like they're just talking all hot air. They're just like, ooh, we're going to get in on this hoax. And it's kind of like, it'd be exciting. You know, what a what a right? huge publicly endorsed hoax that you can make money off of. And it's not hurting anybody, really, right? You're just, you're just making money off a huge lie that terrifies people. But okay. It is funny. It's like, this is how clever these people are at making money. They really can make money out of nowhere. It's those in the know, right? Right now, they're still figuring it out. They don't know how to do it yet, but they're trying to figure out how to bilk those who are not in the know about fakery of satellites. And that is exactly the kind of industry that would attract such people. That's what's so fascinating. They're, right. <laughs> those people exist. They're kind of like skeezy salespeople, you know. They may even be related to us. There's lots of people out there who are attracted to easy money and things that are kind of like, oh, well, we're not killing anybody for this, you know, but it does give me a huge advantage. But the biggest part of space law, um, to move on, is it's the practical part that um, people are making contracts to put satellites in space and then the satellites aren't going into space and they're losing a bunch of money. You know, so not 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 every satellite that's, you know, not every, there's like a ton of different corporations who and, you know, investment opportunities to put satellites into space. So they get a bunch of investors on board, right? Mm. And then it never comes to fruition. That satellite never gets up there. So people are losing a ton of money. So that's the biggest, that's really what space law is right now, is that um, they're suing for damages for breach of contracts over satellite operations and things like that. That is so past, funny. Right. You can see why it's huge, right? Because... If like our assumption is that satellites don't exist, then wow, you could bleed all in. You could bleed cash from tax collections, and wow, and yeah, attracting people who know how to make money out of nothing, which is, let's face it, that's the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> right, they're so good at it. It's like P.T. Barnum stuff, you know. Wrap up this wrap up this dirt sack and call it an ancient mummy. Right, or just steal a guy from a grave and call that an ancient mummy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's some bit of truth, you know, like we were saying, it's the space program didn't start from, it started from an attempt to actually get into space. Right, yeah, no, there's a lot of history about that, but, I mean, the uh, 
the fuzziness of how they achieved miracle after miracle after so many disastrous failures is um yeah is meant to be purchased with your belief in the comical and the absurd and that's what they rely on and it is comical It's raining, man. Hell no, it's raining satellites. Houston, we have a problem. People getting hit up in the head by NASA's. The breeze is falling from the sky. Satellites is falling. Hi, my name is Bumpy Johnson from Johnson Johnson and Associates. Have you been hit by falling debris from the skies because of NASA? Did you just walk outside and bam, you was hit upside your head by one of them satellites? Call us today. We will support you. I've seen many episodes of Law and Order, Criminal Justice, Matlock, People's Court, Divorce Court. CSI, CSI Miami, CSI New York, CSI Mississippi, CSI Africa, CSI Egypt, CSI. I've seen enough episodes of all of CSIs. I got cable. I got on demand. And I will represent you anytime you want me to. If you've been hit by falling debris, go ahead and give us a call. We will be by your side. There's nobody else out there that can represent you like we can represent you. I've passed many balls. I've passed the ball in downtown St. Paul. I've passed the ball in Minneapolis. I've passed the ball in Louisiana because I didn't have no money. But I can get you money. I can get you money. So go ahead and give us a call. Our operators are standing by. That's 1-800-I-NEED-MONEY. That's 1-800-I-NEED-MONEY. And if you've been hit by Nassau, we will help you. Call us. And now hit that one of our certified customers. Hi, my name's Jabari, and it was 1982, I was at an MC Hammer concert, and he was kicking and kicking, and his shoe fell off and hit me in the head. I called Johnson Johnson and Associates, and I got some money. <laughs> so give us a call if you're walking outside, and bam, you got hit upside your head, we'll represent you. I'm Puppet Johnson of Johnson Johnson and Associates, and I can get you some money in your pockets. In this tough economic times, you've been hit by the man. Don't get hit by the man who created the satellite. But, Kay, we still haven't told people what satellites are supposed to be doing, you know. Um, well, there's satellite serious radio, right? It's supposed to be some satellite radio going on. Ah, uh, yes. But that is just uh, radio, isn't it? I think that's just uh, antenna-based. Otherwise, you wouldn't have serious radio or whatever cutting out. Right, it is, um, no, you have confirmation that, yeah, satellite serious radio is actually cell phone tower radio. Mm, 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 it's, like, mm. it's not radio, it's cell phone tower, it's like your phone. That's really what it's sending. Right, and those cell phone towers are popping up everywhere. So that's, that's basic microwave technology. Microwaves have been used since back in the day to send signals from antenna to antenna, you know, via relays, and that technology has never disappeared you know it's not like microwaves suddenly stopped working it's only that they said they replaced some of the microwave functions with satellites so once again you have satellites as a redundant thing weather satellites right yeah guess guess how many weather satellites there are 12 a dozen that's a good guess well according to the official story we've got three just three out of the th- was- out of the thousands that are supposed to be out there, and of all the stories they say about weather satellites being so important and crucial, apparently we've only got three GOES goes satellites up. And as far as I can tell, when I looked up what they did, it was like fuzzy computer data interpreted from photographs. Photographs, like this is photographic technology. This is 
Like, airplanes could do this. <laughs> yeah, you don't need a satellite to take a picture. Not to mention, what are we doing with satellites measuring the weather, which is, what, you know, 10 miles high at most? You know, maybe 50 miles at most? From things that are hundreds of miles away. Yeah, how is that even beneficial? Why wouldn't you just send up a balloon? You know, they have little... um weather stations like all over cities and towns they're all hooked up to this amazing network they have a little wind thing and a temperature yes and um they're all over you can there's one on top of the high school where i teach at we can hear it i was taught in a room one year when it got windy you could hear the thing on the roof go it was so annoying (laughs) you know what my favorite is going to weather.gov i check the radar there all the time You can actually see the clouds coming in, you know, and radar technology checking the weather is as old as radar itself. So what you have is the ability to check really accurate cloud patterns and pollution and weather formations and such. Terrestrial patterns, temperature, local temperature grid over an entire nation. Yeah, terrestrially. You know what happens if you click on satellite data at weather.gov? What? You get a tiny, less accurate picture than what the radar is providing, plus <laughs> plus some photographic elements like clouds. So, again, it comes back to, wait a minute, why aren't they just assembling photographs? Why are they sending up, you know, you know hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment up when you can just launch a plane, take some pictures, bing, bang, boom? Yet they spent $500 million to get, well, I guess, uh, a one billion, a billion and a half dollars mm-hmm. to get three satellites up there? Yeah. I don't they know. They get crappy pictures. They get crappy pictures that are, like, only crappy, apparently, because they need to appear to be, have been taken from far away. So, my, <laughs> so they have to make it worse. Yeah, exactly. That's the weird thing about all this stuff. So again, you have satellites are redundancy. What else can we show that satellites are redundancy? What else are they supposed to be doing? Microwave spying? There's, How about GPS? What is GPS supposedly doing? Well, when you're driving around and it's showing you where you are, that's from cell phone towers. They actually admit that that information is relayed from GPS ground as in terrestrial, as in tower devices, triangulating your position and sending it through cell phone towers to your GPS device on specially designated, military designated GPS bandwidths. Now, how is it that they're supposedly doing that in the middle of the ocean, you may ask? Um, The middle of the ocean isn't vast and empty. There's a ton of islands everywhere, and as proof, that's why we have things called shipping lanes, if you don't stay on your shipping lane, you run the risk of hitting one of these um, seamounts, which are everywhere along the Pacific and the Atlantic. That doesn't mean people are living on these things, does it? These little islands? You can put enough towers. These islands are so plentiful. You could tower the, uh, the vast amount of the ocean if you wanted to and cover it with towers and, and get a good GPS reading there as well. You're just speculating, though, right? You haven't seen, like, on Google Earth, you know, a tower on an island? No, I haven't. I know the seamounts are there. They're quite well documented. Hmm. And, you know, look where shipping lanes are. They avoid them quite expertly. 
you know, if you combine the two. By the way, ships could also hold antennas as they travel. Yes, and, be a, and they do, be and they do send yeah. signals all the time. Yes, we see exactly. that constantly with those that's, little. That's good enough. Those rotating things. Yeah, I know. Like yeah, mobile is even better, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what those battleships are doing out there, just patrolling the waters, you know, day after day. They've got to be doing something else, probably carrying signals, too. Another thing that's interesting to me is is how um, bouncing things off the ionosphere also hasn't changed. In fact, the science can be broken down to a formula based on time of day, season, weather, and predicted really well by people with the computing power to do so and with the signal power to send stuff off the ionosphere. That's not going to change, you know, until there's no ionosphere on Earth. You can always just bounce things really far off the ionosphere. And apparently that's how they did it before satellites existed. So once again, you have satellites as a redundancy to a much cheaper, much more reliable, much more efficient, much more flexible series of technological systems. Again, satellites don't like come up as your first choice for for <laughs> GPS technology. And as far as microwave spying, you know that's supposed to be uh, a satellite eavesdropping on some microwave band. I'm sure they have spy systems all over the world. That's the number one thing that military operations do, is spy and track and capture and report information. They're not stopping anytime soon, you know. They're just, now they have um, micro-satellites the size of a Rubik's Cube. Yeah, that's what they were saying. They wanted to, like, launch a bunch of these things as if there's enough junk up there already. Yeah, add to the worry. Yeah, I want to, but space garbage. Come on, guys. Maybe that's what they need to really pack it full so then they can really scare the shit out of potential investors. Mm, yeah, you need our new satellite, which goes around and cleans things up. Astro. Astro. <laughs> Come here, boy. Go get them. Go get those dirty satellites. Uh, all it will cost you to rent Astro from us is uh, $100 million. $100 million, exactly. We'll hold your satellite hostage until you do. What else are satellites supposed to be good for? I guess the cable companies are, are saying they're going to start using satellites. I heard something. Cable companies. Yeah, to transmit information. You know why? They're getting tired of being tapped. They're like, let's do it. Let's come on. Let's do what the military does. Let's pretend we have a satellite too. Yeah. We're tired of losing money on getting tapped all the time. Speaking of getting tapped. Yeah. We should talk about the story. Oh, about yes. terrestrial cables. There is such, there are, there is more than one story online you can find. I won't, I'll let you explore it for yourself, but it's very interesting because I think if you Google this using your own terms, you will find some very funny uh, stories, which you'd have to investigate for yourself to determine for yourself whether they're true or not. But there's enough of them out there that it's interesting. Supposedly, during construction projects, it's possible to sever cables, of course, which is why, you know, they often say call before you dig, you know, not just for risk of electric shock, but because of cables that are owned by various entities. Well, in one such a case that I came across, the story goes they severed the cable, not knowing that they had done so, 
And then shortly thereafter, some nondescript black SUVs showed up with black windows. Suits came out and said, you've severed one of our cables. And there was some conflict about, you know, what did they had they done it on purpose? Was there a terrorist going around severing cables on purpose and such? I don't know. I don't remember the exact conclusion or if they even revealed a full conclusion or if the story is even real. But the idea was that the Secret Service had just shown up instantly saying, hey, this is a problem. It's it's fascinating. It's such a funny story. And there are um, other things like it on the Internet which point to underground uh, cable network of various agencies which rely on these communications which don't go through regular channels which kind of tells you something about the so-called security of using the internet right if they don't even want to be connected to the internet <laughs> they're like no we have we have, we have our own cables you guys use that you know that dirty internet thing that's funny i found an article um secret government communications cables buried around washington dc and it's dated Sometimes it's uh, 2009, even, they were doing it. Oh, I'm sure it was been going on since cables were invented. I mean... Yeah, since the telegraph. They probably had their own telegraph not hooked up to the grid. Absolutely. Militaries communicating about, you know, attacks and things. The, the value of it for, to the military would be immense. You know, it's probably one of the practices is digging, putting surreptitious cables here and there. It's very interesting to think about. You know, you don't want to accidentally hit one of these and then the Secret Service shows up and they're like, why did you do that? Apparently there's all these articles about North Cali Northern California having some serial cable cutter and the authorities are all upset about it. I don't know how true those stories are or if that's just to like make the hippies in San Francisco kind of upset, but... It's just funny to me that there's some person going around going, yeah, I'm going to find where the cable is and then cut it. Ha, ha, ha. It's just how primitive is our military to have these still. So it's funny. But it's an industry that's huge and it's ever growing. I mean, the map of terrestrial and undersea cables, is its potential for growth is is ginormous. I mean, they're just like doubling almost. It's like crazy, the growth. So my question is, if satellites are so futuristic, why is all the growth in terrestrial and undersea cables? What we what we hear about are fiber optics and you know blazing fast internets coming soon. This seems to be something more practical, which everyone can benefit from. Whereas satellites are extremely expensive, extremely unlikely, unscientifically explained kind of pseudoscience program, which just sells products it's just for well this is this radio is satellite you know helped you know how is it helped by satellites well uh you know there's a satellite out there that kind of does some stuff you know most of it is cell phone towers but anyway satellites <laughs> satellites but i mean do we need them look look how lightning fast our conversation is right it's it's a and this terrestrial, is all terrestrial cable. cable yeah 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 exactly I mean, we could we could talk to someone in New Zealand, Antipodian. Yeah. It, 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 we get immediate feedback, still terrestrial cable. Yep, exactly. Under The subterranean ones are, it's, it's an immense network that they've been laying for decades. Oh, yeah. Decades. It's huge. It's 
you're right. Like, watch where you dig, people. <laughs> right. And you shouldn't look down, not up. Yeah. Or like, look up so you don't, you know, learn that you're actually walking all over the real <laughs> <Right>? satellite technology. <laughs> it's the ultimate. No, no, look over there. Look at that twinkly like, light. <laughs> that twinkly light is is our most advanced technology. Right. Look opposite of where you need to look, because really the shit's under your feet. Let's just finish with this post from Antipodian when we asked for feedback from 17. He says, Vast oceans have enough islands dotted through them for GPS antennas to function. Also, the point made about some TV stations have a, having a 65-mile radius. I've come across this interesting article, and he links to a Daily Mail article. Telstar Satellite beamed pictures from New York to receiver in Cornwall. We have a very uh, touched-up-looking photo of some white guys, some young white guys with military cuts, haircuts, looking at a presumably a satellite-type device here. He writes, why would a satellite beam to a receiver, go to a receiver in Cornwall and not a few hundred miles away in London, where there would be access to a greater pool of qualified personnel to operate the receiver? Obviously, Cornwall is the most westerly point of the UK mainland to receive a transatlantic cable. Oh. <laughs> so, it says the Ted Bundy execution was broadcast from a jail in Florida in 1989 before satellite TV stations had to post recorded footage around the world. He posts a laughy face. Below is a comment from the comment section back in 2012. Nice to know that it's not only CF members who are awake to the scam. Their comment reads, well, here we go again, Birdie, Chris, and the rest. Another report by NASA, something we're getting every two or three weeks. Notice they had to include from the moon. What's the problem, NASA? Getting worried are we as to the number of people who now accept the moon landings were just faked? Another article to try and put over the moon landing story. Try answering these questions, NASA. The camera you used on the moon, apparently Hasselblad, by the way, which is a Hollywood camera, or so you state you used on the moon had a plastic film, okay? So everybody knows that film has to be developed, don't it, NASA? So who developed the film? And how then did you transmit the photos from a plastic film digitally to the Earth? Well, okay, they have their explanation for that, I'm sure. Another thing, NASA, last week you said the landing sites would be protected, and no future astronauts would be allowed to go to them. Why is that? Are you afraid the Chinese are going to get there and spill the beans? Like I said, NASA, the game is over. You can't display any advanced technology without exposing the moon hoax, can you? It's interesting that it does sometimes come back to that, doesn't it? The moon hoax kind of launched in people's minds this idea that, yes, space is very accessible. We can almost just kind of stumble and accidentally get there and achieve things, and it's all very miraculous and silly. The hard science can be ignored with the help of the absurd moon landings and their absolutely unbelievable uh, doctored footage. Uh, even as a kid, I was like, is this real? Really? It's, maybe space makes things look really simplistic and idiotic. What's going on? Yeah, that's kind of the sense that I got, too. Maybe it makes things kind of transparent and as if things are layered. It, it's so It's so weird. I remember really thinking, wow, they could have done a better job. Why didn't they do a better job of this? Why didn't they document this historic event better? But, okay, I mean, now it makes a little more sense. They can't document something that has to be a little bit shitty on purpose so well oh. 
Right, gotta make it shitty again on purpose. It has to be a little shitty on purpose. This is from space. It's shitty out here. It's really <laughs> shitty out here. There's just well, was, so many problems out here, and we're just like, you know, we have to move a little slower. We have to do like little bunny hops on in our little outer spacesuits. Well, you can see why they have to um, forbid people from going back to the la- old landing sites because. The sets are taken apart. Well, and probably what they have taken, you know, what what they set up as, oh, this is the location that it supposedly took place. There's probably plenty of problems with it. Just like they have to revise the 9-11 videos and say, oh, look, see, now this video shows the cross between, you know, the nose being there and the nose not being there. It's just constantly cutting down the middle. That's what they have to do. New digitized videos coming from NASA. Oh, yeah. Happens right. all the time. Anyway, I, I hope this gives people a, a good starting place to talk about the satellite scam. I mean, undoubtedly, whether satellites are real or not, you've got satellite scams all over the place. So, Oh, space lawyers attest to that. They <laughs> have to deal with them all the time. People are in court because of satellite scams. Scams exist. I think that's one of the funniest things that that you try to tell people and they say, you're a conspiracy theorist. It's like... Okay, yeah, no one's ever tried to lie to anyone, ever. No one's ever tried to make money off another person for, you know, any moral lie. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm a... I'm a th- this is just a grand scale of the same thing. It is. It's it, grand. Basically, human behavior. Yeah. And they don't exist in a vacuum, boy, right? They need... The military, the government, the media, they're all, they're all propping it up. Yeah. All of them. And they need, they need to digest and spit out authentic cultures, you know? They need to like chew them up, try to convert them into the empire belief system. That's, that's what the empire functions on is like taking, you know, real authentic cultures, which we may or may not agree with. Yes, you know, we may have conflicts with these other cultures, but the point is they have the right to exist, and there shouldn't be some unifying force that, that says the only way that we can coexist is to destroy all past cultures. I'm sorry, that's that's not a real solution. No, we can coexist even better. It's more colorful. It's There's more flavors. Oh, my God. There's more things to experience. Let, let us not please combine. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we can combine in our own ways. It doesn't have to be a, a forced thing. It doesn't have to be a, a violence, a violation, which is what these lies are of our psychology. They're a violation. Oh, aren't they? They are. And they like to traumatize us and violate us at the same time. And justify it and come up with explanations as to why it's so much better that we actually do learn their silly lies. Mm, we're better off, you know, we're better off this way, hating and fearing one another. <laughs> like, then they try and bring us together. And then, then the media pulls us apart again. Then the media tries to bring us together again. It's never. Well, if they're going to be the hero, they have to create the villain. That's the thing, right? They have. To- yes, it works together, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a package. It's that package deal. A galian dialect something like that ah uh, yes problem reaction solution yep 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 
seems like an old, old tool. Right? You got satellites. You got satellite garbage. Now you need a satellite garbage removal system called Astro, the beloved little space robot. That's a self-perpetuating one. You you got shitty satellites that are going to kill you. You need better satellites that are going to save you. That's a... It's got its own little gyro in there going. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think we backed up a little bit. That was good. This this is like the, the prequel, you know, to the first one. Kind of putting it in context, I think. Yeah, we really did need that. Thank you for the idea. It's it's better this way. to Because we have to remind ourselves that a lot of people are not familiar with with the idea that they that they should be resisting something, you know, they might think that it's all kind of hunky dory, and maybe if this empire is taking over, it's probably for the best, you know. I think that's one of the underlying beliefs that people have is that oh well, it just needs to be this way. It can't possibly be any other way. And it's, you know, it's like, it's okay to resist. It's okay to question authority. It's okay to ask questions, for goodness sakes, and learn about the world you live in. Yeah, it's a tough red pill to take, though. Ah, yes, the red pill, the matrix analogy yeah. again. Ay, ay, ay. It's, but it's not that dramatic. It's a little awakening. A little well, bit. right, that's the thing. It's not so sci-fi. <laughs> Right. It's more about just like, I don't know, it's almost just based on your individual culture. But for me, it's spiritual. For me, it's tuning into the reality and being able to relate to others about it. Oh, yeah. Once you can free yourself of that burden and those lies, life is beautiful. Oh, my God. Creation is amazing. It really what is. What we have right now, what we have right here. We don't have to go back and look at dinosaurs. We don't have to go forward and look at space. What we have right here, right now, the mountains and the oceans and the cultures and the people, it's so amazing. Yes, these are the greatest gifts that we've been given. It's just like, it's amazing. But uh, anyway, technology is good. Good to know about, good to learn about. Uh, But let's learn about what's actually going on. You know, before we get pseudoscientific beliefs about technology. Well, I guess that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to keep it real. So I think we're good for now. I like the idea that we might hit a topic more than once. Yeah, and maybe we can get better at actually doing them more frequently. Gosh, it's just been that internet problem, which for me is proof enough that satellites aren't real. <laughs> what what was the internet problem? Maybe we can Well this whole area was just choppy, like phone network, internet, streaming, game, movie, voice, you name it. It was all just like cutting out every three or five seconds. It was just like in, it, in Arizona. It, but yeah, Arizona and Southern California. In Southern California. And that was the Cox network? Supposedly. I wonder if they were upgrading or something. Well, yeah, and I was wondering if the military was like, scoot over, we need this bandwidth for something. And supposedly someone was also hearing, um, like, earthquake-type things. And, you know, but the earthquake-type things in the desert are often, like, rumblings and explosion-type things, too. So, I don't know. Like, who knows what the military's up to? They're just up to shenanigans. Oh, yes, I used to live in Tacoma near the military base. 
And they would, they were constantly exploding stuff up. It was crazy. I'm like, still again? Right. But I guess, I mean, the use of conventional weapons is strong on military bases because they're teaching, um, it, you know, it was like teaching. They're teaching guys to aim ordnance properly to get the right, you know, landing site, get the coordinates right, things like that. They're still doing that now. I mean, it's, it's big practice. Yeah, it's actually, it kind of ties into our next subject, which is, we'll, we'll try to tackle the Cold War. Um, I'm not sure if that actually deserves a two-parter, because it might just be kind of like very speculative, but maybe we can try to understand, wrap our heads around, what was this Cold War, you know? Was it, was it even anything? Well, I mean, you don't have to speculate about the propaganda propaganda that's kind of pretty blatant and outright isn't it it is yeah but then i i guess it would be a chance to examine the uh the layers to it because there's the blatant propaganda and then there's the idea that maybe russia and america are actually allies during this time too and they both benefit from this perception of you know tension and like you say strategy of tension but we can get into that. You mean they're time. in on it together, uh, Russia and the U.S.? What? No, what are you talking I mean, about? They didn't copy each other's shuttles or anything. No, or like satellite <laughs> programs. No, like ways of governing. Okay, let's keep it real. Let's together. keep it real together. Yeah, that's what we do. I see the sun, I see the moon, I see the beauty in your eyes, I see the sun, I see the beauty in your eyes.
the only decision we leave to you is which program to watch. The most visible component of your new TV system is the satellite dish. Think of it as a TV aerial. It's nothing more than that. Because of our advanced technology, Skyscan dishes are smaller than many others, yet just as powerful. It can be installed in your garden or on the wall of your home. Our satellite engineers will place it where it gets the best reception. It moves by remote control, unlike some dishes which have to be turned manually. It's completely weatherproof. You don't have to clean it, paint it or worry about it. It doesn't need servicing. Think of it as a TV aerial. Inside your home, we will install the most advanced piece of satellite technology available today, the Skyscan receiver. Our engineers have produced a highly sophisticated piece of equipment. It's designed to integrate with your existing system. It can be plugged directly into your TV set or through a video recorder. You can record satellite programs just like ordinary TV. Once installed, it works as simply as normal television. With a remote control, channel hopping is even more enjoyable with the wide choice offered by satellite TV. With more than 17 channels, there's always something you want to watch. And sometimes, something you don't want the kids to watch. There again, Skyscan's research has come up with the answer. Parent lock. By using a secret code, you can stop the children watching any program you think is unsuitable. And that's all there is to it. You don't have to know anything about satellites. Skyscan does it all for you. Choose Skyscan, and your only decision is which channel to watch. Very simply, it works like this. There are scores of communication satellites orbiting the Earth. Some of them relay TV programs. For the moment, we're concerned with two geostationary satellites more than 22,000 miles above the Earth. More will be launched in the future and your Skyscan equipment will be instantly compatible with them, adding even more channels. Programs are transmitted from Earth to one satellite, bounced off it and come back to Earth. Think of the satellite as a TV transmitter in the sky. Back on the ground, your dish has been installed so that it receives the signals coming back. These signals pass down the cable, into the Skyscan receiver and onto your TV screen. Half the channels are on one satellite the rest are on the other. That's why your dish moves to change satellites. Already millions of pounds have been spent so you can watch satellite TV. And one result of this is the superb picture quality. Skyscan's engineers have even improved on the remarkable standards already achieved. We promise you've never seen anything like it. Remember, all this is just the start. And soon there'll be more satellites, more channels, more choice. And your Skyscan system has been designed to take them all in its stride. With Skyscan, you get a TV system for now and into the future. Enter the third age of broadcasting now with Skyscan, your world of entertainment. I mean, couldn't you start a satellite company and just bury a bunch of cables but tell everyone it's a satellite? Ah, this part happens all the time. A construction crew putting up an office building in the heart of Tyson's Corner a few years ago hit a fiber optic cable no one knew was there. This part doesn't. Within moments, three black sport utility vehicles drove up. A half dozen men in suits jumped out and one said, you just hit our line. Whose line, you may ask? The guys in suits didn't say, <laughs> recalled Aaron <laughs> Drogalis, whose company, the Drogalis Group, was developing the Greensboro Corporate Center on Spring Hill Road. But Drogalis, or maybe it's 
Orgalis assumed that he was dealing with the federal government and that the cable in question was Blackwire, a secure communications line used for some of the nation's most secretive intelligence gathering operations. So if I want to stop a construction project in the D.C. area, all I need to do is drive up in a black SUV, wear a suit and sunglasses, and refuse to identify myself. 